Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, yeah, so several things before we get starting, started with the uh, Targaryens here today, but um, have you heard of the magazine Sight and Sound, which I have heard of but hadn't really read before or anything? Nope, not familiar at all. Okay, and I don't know it beyond the title. Uh, it's just a British film magazine that's been around since uh, the 50s. Where I think it only pops up on my radar is every 10 years they do a poll internally, or I don't know who all they, they source, but... Uh, they put out the top 10 movies of all time. So their very first year, 1952, you know, it was like, it was Bicycle Thieves, which is like an Italian movie that I've seen that is really good. And, okay. And then from like 62 on, it had been Citizen Kane. So 62, 72, 82, all the way through 2002, Citizen Kane was like their top film of all time. And AFI had also done it the same, you know, put it on their list. And so it's kind of been prominent there. 2012, they kind of shook it up, and Citizen Kane dropped to number two, and they gave Vertigo the top spot, the Hitch- Hitchcock movie. Really? Which, yeah, again, I need to rewatch it. I remember, like, it's good, but it's probably not even my, it, well, sorry, it's definitely not even my favorite Hitchcock, so I'd be curious to revisit it. But at least that I had heard of. The reason I'm bringing this up is they just came out with their 2022 list, or at least I just became aware of their 2022 list, and Vertigo now number two, Citizen Kane now number three. Their number one is a movie I have never heard of, and I'm kind of into this stuff more than most people. So the new number one movie of all time is Jean Dieleman, 23 Key Du Commerce, uh, 1080 Brussels. What? <laughs> it's a 1975... What the hell is that? ...three-hour-long Belgian movie that I had never heard of. All right, I, I don't take this list seriously, then. <laughs> that seems like some just yeah it seems contrarian to me where they're just trying to like be provocative with their choice yeah and and it's oh and it's been out since 1975 and all of a sudden it's the best movie ever give me a break no right and it never and and it never made their top 10 previously so i I too am skeptical yeah while also being very excited to watch it like it it's in the 90s on rotten tomatoes it's in the high sevens on imdb like it's a good movie i've never heard of by all accounts but i agree with you i'm a little jaded about the fact that seriously come on come on I'm sure it's a good movie, but uh, yeah, there's no way that it's, there's no way. I know, I that know. That seems like, it's just, somebody at that magazine was like, oh, we have to shake it up. It's always been the same. It's, you know, we, we got to really make a splash and get people talking about it. this. It's very clearly, to me, it seems like a, more of a ploy for attention and like, I, I just, I don't buy it. And that was, and that was, and that was my knee jerk reaction as well. I have a little bit more of a nuanced take. I'm sure the movie's good. I'm sure the movie's good. No, nothing against the movie, but uh, yeah, that that magazine, I uh, I don't buy. Yeah. It. So, but again, it's like the rest of it's. I don't know. So anyway, whatever. <laughs> Grain of salt, as always, with these with these kinds of things. <laughs> but uh, my one counterpoint, impossibly their defense, is the idea of a, a rediscovery. So obviously, in 1982, maybe it's too recent, and then everyone just kind of forgot about it. It's almost one of those things where it does kind of take a critical mass, and if no one brings it up, then no one else revisits it, and then so at some point, it got revisited and masked by their in- group internally in here at least and they were all kind of blown away by maybe a film that they weren't familiar with either and it ended up at the top spot maybe not even by like 
they planned on it, more like they all vote independently. And oh, crap, I guess we did this thing. And I could see, you know, I've talked about how, you know, Roma from a couple years ago, eh, it's kind of slow, but it's really good. And I've kind of said right when it came out, like, this is the kind of movie that's going to be in a similar thing. Is Roma in the top 10? No. But if you told me in 30, 40 years, they say Roma is not the best movie of all time, I'd be like, yeah, I could see that. So I think it's maybe one of those kinds of things where it's just a rediscovery, but it is probably a recency bias. You think in 40 years, Roma's going to be considered the greatest movie of all time? I'm saying I wouldn't be surprised if it got similar treatment. Oh, okay. Because I've seen Roma. It's good. Right. I don't know if it's the greatest movie of all time. No, but it's the it's the kind of movie they put on these lists, though. <laughs> okay, I, okay I, I, see, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. That as it ages, it gets that prestige. Anyway, I'm curious to watch it, but... Uh, I was just shocked that I'd never even heard of it, because uh, that's hard to do with me on these lists. I'm not going to lie, just a cursory look over what this movie is and what it's about, and the fact that it's three hours long? <laughs> yeah. Running to, uh, all, three and a half, almost. 200 minutes. Yeah. This seems so boring. <laughs> this seems this seems like they just picked some boring-ass movie with a... I'm sure, I'm sure it's fine, but it's like, oh, and the, it's got the French title, and give me a fucking break. There is absolutely no way this is the best movie of all time. Uh, well, I'm, well, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of mad about this now. Sorry, 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 to, it, sorry to ruin your day. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I, 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 you know what? I should go look. I didn't even see what the what its Rotten Tomatoes is. I, I looked and I forget. It was solid. It was like ninety slash something 80 or something like it was where can i even watch it um it's on hbo max because it because it's 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 criterion collection so it's probably already criterion collection oh oh, oh, oh okay okay it, it is widely available Shoot, maybe that's how they all watched it yeah it is it is widely available yeah. okay <laughs> no one's seen this movie no no one has seen this like no. it's, is if i go to the rotten tomatoes is it gonna have like five reviews oh i forget i'm curious <laughs> now too oh geez okay let's see Okay, it's a 91% or sorry, 97% with 31 reviews. Yep. <laughs> no one has seen this movie. <laughs> hey, maybe it's it's again, it's un- undiscovered newly discovered gem unearthed uh... Okay, l- maybe if this was a a little known indie flick that came out like 3 or 4 years ago, I could buy that it's that good with that with that few reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But this movie's been out since 1975 and only 31 people have reviewed it on Rotten Tomatoes and it's the best movie of all time. Absolutely not. I don't know. The other one I think about is the worst person in the world. Did you, you know, Aaron had us her number one last year, and I put it at number four. Again, same kind of thing. Everyone kind of forgets about it, and then it's rediscovered in 20 years, and everyone's like, holy crap, best movie ever. But I agree that it's kind of a, it's almost like a recency bias in a roundabout way, where you just recently saw an old movie that you're now allowed to consider great, because you can never consider a new release the best movie of all time. If anyone says a movie from 2022 is the best movie of all time, you tend to think they're dumb. <laughs> because it's like you have to give it the, yeah. the, the chance to kind of age and see how it holds up and all those kinds of things. Anyway, <laughs> sorry I brought it up. Uh, so, And then, again, I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about my trip to Europe here last month. But uh, I, did, I did go back over. I was in Budapest and Vienna and Prague. And the only reason I thought it worth mentioning is... That was a very Holy Roman Empire-esque trip. Oh, yeah. 
Very Prussian. Yes, yes. So it got me... <laughs> Actually, is it quite Prussia? I always get confused. I always think Prussia's farther north than that. Oh, yeah, you're right, because Prussia's more like Germany. It's, it was like kind of like northern... Isn't it? No, I thought it was like north. Like, Prussia always confuses Poland? me. Poland. I was thinking it was like northern Poland, but like maybe like into northern Germany and into like Latvia and stuff. Like it's kind of that just northern Baltic or the Baltic coast there. I didn't think it corresponded largely with uh, anything exactly, but yes, I think it's it's very German esque. But I think it goes into Poland and stuff. Well, now I gotta look at. I know. Now we gotta look at Prussia, <laughs> just because I don't think I was in Prussia. Oh, it's oh, it's kind of weird. It's like okay, you're right. Yeah, it's. It borders, like, obviously Russia and the Austria-Hungarian yeah, Empire, right. which would have been more where you were at, because right. Prague would have been Austria-Hungary. I, I think, I, actually, all of it would have been. Right. I th- yeah, it was very much Austria-Hungarian Empire, which also was kind of, like, after the whole Roman Empire, so that kind of makes sense, too. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so Prussia is, it. you're right, it is, like, the northern part of Germany, and then over into what is now, like, kind of the Baltics where the Kaliningrad Oblast is, that part of Russia, and then, like, yeah, the northern part of Poland. Okay. Basically, all that stuff that borders the southern part of the Baltic Sea there. Okay, was Prussia. And then over kind of towards Denmark and and the northern part of Germany. Okay. Yeah, so I wasn't there, and I do kind of get confused. It was was fascinating, you know, doing some of the walking tours and getting the history of how the Holy Roman Empire was influencing these places, and then kind of, like, Hungary in particular. It's like, they were independent, and then... Actually, so they might not actually have been Holy Roman Empire because they were, I do get confused with Holy Roman Empire versus Austro-Hungarian Empire. Anyway, so like Hungary, independent, then the Ottoman Empire takes over, then they get the Austrians to help them boot the Turks, but then basically that's an exchange for making the Austro-Hungarian Empire where Hungary is very much secondary to Austria and then... They end up roped into two world wars, piggybacking with Austria, and kind of end up going from Austria straight to after World War. Well, after World War One, they kind of lose all their territory, and then they join the Nazis just to try to get their territory back. Not because they had any ideological agreement with the Nazis, but then so they're on the losing side again there, and then they up end up in Soviet hands until the late eighties, early nineties. So it was basically like 700 years there where Hungary wasn't independent from Turkish taking yeah. over all the way until the fall of communism in Eastern Europe there. So that was kind of interesting. And just how the Holy Roman Emperor, you know, kind of picked where, you know, from Vienna and into Prague and learning about all the kind of that stuff. So I feel like I was in a roundabout way doing research for our future, finally tackling the Holy Roman Emperor Empire <laughs> here at some point. And I, yeah. I do feel like it does yeah. kind of start to make sense in the sense that it is just kind of a loose confederation of germanic states with them nominally being ruled by a holy roman empire emperor but that ebbs and flows as to how much control he actually has over all those autonomous semi-autonomous regions yeah. so it, it kind of yeah it's manageable if you maybe kind of uh around some corners here and then you get you know you get into the the Habsburgs and all that kind of stuff were anyway. So, well, that's, that's kind of an issue with trying to understand, you know, the political geography of any empire around that time is like, it's really not as much control exerted from like one central authority right. as, as you would think, especially like today, you know, it's, there's like, right. it's, it's like this country is ruled. It's, it's like this political entity because the modern world allows for that. Whereas, Factor in the days of the Holy Roman Empire, it's like somebody could grow up and like, yeah, they're in theory they're under the control of the Holy Roman Emperor, but like 
that might have had little to no effect on their life at all, whereas they were more ruled by whatever, like, local vassal or lord or, or whoever. Right. Just, like, had more control over them specifically. Right. And, and, and I also think how, too, how it ties into what we talked about with Richelieu, and Richelieu actually kind of helped keep them disparate and not necessarily reuniting like they could because he kind of foresaw the united Germany would be... Uh, uh, a beast and then napoleon though also yeah. then helps trigger it when napoleon kind of napoleon essentially puts an end to the holy roman empire but then you start to have germans united by their common germanity <laughs> when uh right when they don't want to be french and then that kind of slowly right. snowballs into the first world war uh it, i mean it's very very slowly but still once the german empire is founded it's like the 1870s right right and then 40 years later is world war one right and there was plenty of conflicts before that with with the kaisers and you know wilhelm and all that kind of stuff right. they were definitely starting to yeah. move that direction and then you end up with all the yeah so i was in i was in the austro-hungarian empire and they still it's very much like oh this is the guy whose son was killed and started a little war you may have heard of called world war one like oh right. okay yeah. yeah 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 and i've never been in uh former soviet states like that before i guess i had been in berlin before which i mean i guess that was uh east germany but never actually been in uh anything where you can kind of still see the remnants of stuff like that like we we're in prague and there's this giant old communist stadium that they're basically letting run down because it's uh tyler Rovstein was said well this is kind of just a check personality thing that it's too expensive to tear down so we're not going to tear it down but it's communist and it's the russians so we're just going to give it a big middle finger and never actually repair it we're just going to let it we're just going to let it die we're just going to die a slow death because screw this stadium that was built by the soviets (laughs) yeah anyway and then the last thing uh, I wanted to mention is that everyone, and I don't think I've told Logan this yet necessarily either, everyone could go buy my new novel now. It is now available for purchase, and it's called An Odd Fellow. Where can they find it? Oh, well, yeah, so uh, it is on Amazon, but the easiest way is probably to go to our, our website where I post the podcast in the first place, so, so uh, tracknerds.com is uh, where you can probably find the links to the Amazon version, there's a, there's a print version on Amazon, and then also I'll have a Kindle, Kindle version up hopefully by the time this airs, if not here pretty soon. Even though this is a history podcast, and this is a period piece of sorts, the his, history isn't necessarily the focus, this is just an Invisible Man story, so if you're interested, awesome. If not, I understand this maybe is not the place uh, where you are coming to for sci-fi, but I do have uh, my character spending a lot of time out in like 1950s hollywood on movie sets and so i do my research for any period i'm putting a character in so there is still an element of history uh anytime i'm writing something that's not set in the present i want to make sure i get the details right and even figure out like oh what was going on in october of 1952 in los angeles like i'll research that kind of stuff to see if i can work it into to my narrative and probably a little more in depth than your other novel magic carpet ride where they there is they do go to places in history but it's like for a few moments a bunch of because it's a time travel thing so they they right. it's like they're jumping back and forth so i mean they're going to historical times and places but it's not um uh, not in depth into any one uh era right right whereas this one is actually set in yes in history although i have been known to spend a whole day researching for to get one sentence just right <laughs> because if it's <laughs> yeah, if it's yeah. One that i, I want to make sure i'm not making something up that could be known and so yeah I, I try to make up as little as possible anytime i'm uh right dealing with history and yes yeah, so that's my second book i the other one is a time travel ya this one's more of a just standard adult light sci-fi again my whole thing was to make it 
not like he gets turned invisible and becomes a superhero or anything like that. It's more just kind of rooted in reality outside of him becoming invisible. There are no supernatural or sci-fi elements to the whole story. It really is just what would you actually do if you're invisible? And this, uh, my character just kind of going through life and who he encounters. And so it's more of kind of a, not quite a drama because I don't necessarily write drama, but it, it is kind of a very, I call it a light drama because it's not necessarily a, hilarious either by any means so call it, call it a light sci-fi light drama so yeah check that out but today we are going to dive into the targaryens and obviously this is also not historical so maybe it was fitting i was talking about my my novel there too and the main <laughs> reason i really wanted to talk about this and i know and we will definitely get into uh logan and i are both very disillusioned with the world of game of thrones following the poor ending to the original series, uh, Logan more so than me. But what I realized is when I'm looking through this stuff, so my dad and I were watching House of the Dragon together, and then we, you know, pull out a book or a family tree of the Targaryens. And basically, my brain couldn't tell the difference between doing that and researching English monarchs. So like it was scratching that same itch when it comes to devouring the history and the stories behind these lineages and all those kinds of things. Like I for me, it was all the same. But I also think that's unique to what George R. R. Martin has done here. I've never done bothered doing that with Lord of the Rings. There's a millions of other fantasy and sci-fi worlds that have similar kind of world building that has gone into them. And none of them have ever remotely interested me to the level of what Game of Thrones has done. And I think that's a testament to the quality of George R. R. Martin's world building. And so we kind of wanted to just yeah. have some fun talk dragons and targaryens and the world of game of thrones and yeah so this might be kind of almost i mean a lot of notes this might be a little too comprehensive we both have family trees pulled up so we might even just kind of even have logan kind of follow along and jump in here as i run through the targaryen history and targaryen family tree we'll try to minimize spoilers maybe at first but definitely know now this is going to get into spoilery territory as we go but it's like well, okay. I, I guess if you if the only exposure that you have to this stuff is just the TV shows, and you don't look into any, like if you haven't read the books, um, or you don't look into any of the other like lore, then yeah, like that you know some of this stuff might be spoilery. But I don't really think that like the point of House of the Dragon is like to surprise you with with how it ends because ultimately that's already. No, like that's already in the lineages that they already have talked about in the books. You know what I mean? Like, it, no, yeah, I agree. We we already know, like the the big things of like who is ultimately gonna control Westeros. You know, in after this political fight is over, we already know. Right, right. You know, no third party comes in because you know the Targaryens are still gonna be on the throne. Right, but even like, and this is kind of a, this is a little <laughs> bit of a spoiler already. So I'll just I'll just say that before I say this, but like towards the end of season one of House of the Dragon, there's a rift between two factions. Aegon. Yeah. yeah. Right. A Aegon, who is the son of the king by Alicent Hightower, and then his half sister. Older half sister, Rhaenyra. Yes. So there's a rift between them and it's like, oh, who's gonna win? Well, I, I won't I won't say it right now. We can maybe get into that later, but like we already know. 
Right, but you only know if you don't know from the show, from the original Game of Thrones show. You only know if you've read the book or looked at a family tree. No, 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 no. I, I'm that's what I'm saying. Is you only you would you would know that if you were into the books or looked into the extended lore. If your only exposure is the show, then yes, this will be kind of spoilery. Okay, so what I want to do here, I actually want to rewind. I'm gonna, I want to give the whole history going back even before the show here. Talk about the history of the Targaryens in general. And then roll from that into, and maybe we'll even kind of gloss over the House of the Dragon show, and then kind of pick back up and roll that and connect it to the original Game of Thrones series, and kind of get through the whole House of Tar- okay. whole, whole House of the Dragon kind of thing. I, I will say uh, before we get started, I have I have hated on Game of Thrones a lot, definitely to you, like in like off air conversations, but I'm pretty sure I've probably done it in episodes as well i don't i don't know if any how much of that has actually made it into the podcast it kind of all blends together right um in my brain but i think that this show because i did i did get to watch a couple of episodes and through just through like doing the research and watching videos and stuff i was basically like i don't care how much of this gets spoiled for me like i want to know okay so you didn't watch the whole thing but you basically did enough research you know what happens in season one yeah i i I know all the big events of season one and i did watch i think the first episode and a half maybe but like i i I did enough research to know what happens in every episode and like what happens over the series as a whole just because i didn't care about it being spoiled okay but i think that this might actually it's not going to redeem Game of Thrones, but I will follow this show. I think I, this good. is is good, and I and I, I the reason is is because George R. R. Martin's involved. Yes, and it doesn't have Weiss and Benioff yeah. making any decisions, yeah. which I think was the you know was the issue in the first the first Game of Thrones oh, series. So. Yeah, and, and we'll and we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Let's let's put a pin in that because yeah. I, I definitely I okay, definitely okay. do want to talk about the original Game of Thrones series today. So I'm going to label this episode like Targaryen family history or something like that. But uh, we'll definitely kind of get to everything. But I also want to yeah. make sure we're done within an hour here. <laughs> so I'll try, I'll, try to go, I'll try to go quick. And I don't know how much of this stuff you've looked into in the past. So going, we're going to go way, way back to like basically the beginnings of this world, which actually I don't know. Do we actually know the name of the planet that like Westeros and Essos here are on? Is there ever a planet name given? Um... I don't know. You might look that up while I'm while I kind of move on here. Uh, yes, the Targaryens that we kind of see in both these series—they were kings of Westeros for 300 years, but they're a much older family than all get all that. So going back 5,000 years ago, and I'm going to say that the present is like the current, sort of the original Game of Thrones series. We call that the present. Yeah. You go 5,000 right. years before that uh, on the continent of Essos. Which again, original Game of Thrones series, that's where you see Danny mostly is over in on the continent of Essos, going kind of going around there. So on that continent, completely away from Westeros, there was multiple civilizations, and on the southern end of that continent, there was just this rocky peninsula covered in volcanoes that a bunch of shepherds lives on because it's too rocky to farm. So basically just a bunch of shepherds are living on this volcanic peninsula. And that peninsula peninsula is called Valeria. And the volcanoes are known as the 14 Flames, I guess. So just kind of a poor backwater on Essos. But dragons are discovered in the volcanoes. And it's unclear exactly how, but over the course of a few generations, the Valerians, which again doesn't refer to the house we see in House of the Dragon, but just the people of this peninsula are called Valerians. So somehow over a few generations, they end up gaining control over these dragons to you know some extent at least and then so thanks to 
dragons and magic because there is a little bit of magic in the Game of Thrones world. Valyria goes from this, you know, rocky peninsula of shepherds to a thriving cultural center that kind of controls most of Essos with this powerful capital city of Valeria, which again is confusing because you have the Valerian house, but then you also have the Valerian peninsula and the city of Valeria is the capital of it. But it's spelled different. Oh, uh, okay. But it sounds the same. Is that something else too? What you're saying is like, it's not the house. I was like, well, yeah, it's not the house, but it's because it when you look at it written down, it's, it's very clear that they're not the same. They just sound the same when you say them out loud. Yes, yes. And I'm sure they have a similar route as well. Yeah. So basically then now because they have dragons and magic, they're now basically, they start conquering uh, most of central and Western Essos because they're just stronger. And then they, it kind of snowballs from there. Did you have a name of the planet by chance, real quick? Since I there is no official name okay. of the planet, uh, but apparently, and I never knew this, but apparently, uh, there is a uh, an unofficial name that some fans use. They call it Planetos, like Westeros. Oh, that's lame. I don't like that at all. But that's but that's not that's not an okay. official thing. That's just something the fans came up with. Uh, George R. R. Martin never named it. Okay. It's just the world. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, so um, about two thousand years ago again before the game of thrones series a ethnic group called the andals fled the valerians to go to westeros and then the andals subsequently conquered the first men and the children of the forest so most of modern westeros i.e in the show of game of thrones are descended from the andals the exception being the north they actually remained the first men and were never actually conquered by the andals and so it's all very very similar and intentionally so to england with the Andals being like the Anglo-Saxons and the First Men being like the Britons. So you can very much see that the Starks are like up in Scotland right. by the wall, and they're a different ethnic group than the Anglo-Saxon Andals that have taken over the rest of the continent. And that is actually reflected in the show in their accents. Mm. The Starks speak, and, and the actors they the actors are British, or most of them are British, but they actually speak with a different, a lot of them with a different accent what they normally use, and it is an accent that is a more of like a northern British accent, whereas like the accent of the Lannisters and people in King's Landing is like, you know, you have like the Cockney accents for yes. like the, the peasants, yeah. and then uh, a lot of the people like that live and work in and around the Red Keep speak with like uh, the RP, like that very oh, right. uh, posh and like, you know, high society British accent. So, yeah, that's just another interesting note, like, from the show itself to where they can show that that's, like, a difference in their in their culture. Yes, and, the, and they have the religious differences, too, where the, the North has different oh, gods. Right. And it's because they're they're basically a diff- they're all white, but they're different, different ethnic groups, if you kind of trace their lineage yeah. back. That the Starks have basically right. been on Westeros forever, and everyone yeah. else kind of moved over from, to, from Essos to escape the not the Targaryens, who escaped just the Valerians in general with all their dragons and their power there. Yeah. Dorne is the other one that's the same boat. So about 700 years, Dorne came, the, the Dornish came over later, but they're another different ethnic group that came over to Westeros to escape right. the Valerians and settled in the south. Which is why they're more olive-complected. Yes, yes. And so they're, they're, they're a different ethnic group within the world of the show as well. So... In this world of the Valerians kind of controlling Essos and sending these groups uh, off over the seas, House Targaryen was just a minor family. So all these all these houses, all these Tur- uh, Valerian houses have have dragons and are dragon riders and stuff. But and House Targaryen was just one of many. But about 
400 years ago, or you could say about 100 years before the conquest uh, that we're going to get to, a Targaryen girl had a vision of Valeria's destruction. And yeah. no one really outside of the family cared, thought she was crazy or whatever, but the family viewed it as a prophecy. So they moved their whole house to Dragonstone off the coast of Westeros. Right. And then nine years later, the prophecy comes true and Valeria is destroyed. It's kind of unclear, but it seems to be like massive earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, just... Yeah. 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 They they call it the Doom of Valyria, and it's yes, the Doom of but Valyria, it, it is yeah. it's like mysterious. Like no one knows what happened exactly, how it happened, why it happened. It's like a just a mystery. All of a sudden, in Valyria, this like giant society just destroyed, which almost makes it kind of like an Atlantis in in a, in a way. Yeah, yeah, but except for except for that, it's still there. Like you can still true, you can true. still go there and see like there there's the ruins of Valyria now, which we see in the Game of Thrones series when uh, yeah Tyrion and Jorah are kind of on a boat and they're going through these massive right. ruins and they get attacked by the Stone Men. Attacked by the Stone Men. Yep that that is the ruins of Valyria that they are going through. Right. And it, but it's comprehensive. So the city's gone. All the major major houses and all their dragons are destroyed. Yep. So yeah. Now it leaves the little Targaryen house as the only dragon riders left in the world. Right. They've kind of now shifted where they're kind of over uh, closer to Westeros, just off the coast, kind of just doing their own thing though. Oh, something else. What while we're talking about before we get too far away from us having talked about the ethnicities and stuff, mm. the Valyrians are also kind of a distinct ethnicity. From the what you know, like the Andals, and, oh right, you know, right, which is like the the and the Dornish and the First Men, you know, up, up north of Starks, yes, because they all have that like platinum blonde, like white oh, hair, yeah, okay, and in not in the show, but in the books, they also have purple eyes. Yes, yes, yeah, they, yeah. I talk about even like like you know Daenerys Targaryen or whatever in the books, yeah, has purple eyes. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a common family trait. Yeah, so. The seven kingdoms of Westeros are always kind of warring with each other. And this is always kind of confused me, but I think I finally got it figured out. So they always talk about the seven kingdoms. Every time they mention the king of Westeros, they talk about the king of the seven kingdoms. Right. Of course, again, before the conquest here we're going to get to, it was seven different kingdoms. You had the Stark king. You right. had the Martell king. You had the Lannister king. Yes. And after the conquest, the seven kingdoms are a little harder to name. So the seven are, they kind of keep calling it the seven kingdoms, even when it isn't still seven kingdoms. And that's kind of what makes it so confusing. Well, it's it's like calling it the UK, but you have Wales and England and Scotland and Northern. Like, well, but I'm seeing those are the, it, it, it's it's similar to that, where it's like they're kind of political entities because there are wardens of those areas. Well, I, I mean, more specifically after the conquest, there's more than seven, but they still call it seven. Well, it'd be the seven original kingdoms that were separate. Right. They don't they don't still they don't still exist. There's yeah, there's not still a one to one lord over them, though. Like it's, it's the, the geography. Shifts, oh, OK. And they aren't the same yeah, seven yeah, yeah. bordered groups anymore. And they still call it the seven kingdoms. Correct. Yeah. 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 OK. I see, I see what you're saying. So uh, the seven are uh, the north ruled by the Starks. Dorne in the south, ruled by the Martells. The Westerlands, uh, also like the Rock, Castle Rock, ruled by the Lannisters. Yep. The Reach, which is kind of south of that, ruled by the Gardeners. Right. And then uh, the Vale, which is kind of like the Fingers and stuff, uh, kind of north uh, or south of the Wall, but yep. north of what will become King's Landing, ruled by the Arryns. Yep. The Stormlands, kind of in the southeast, but still above Dorne, uh, ruled by the Durandans. Right. And then you have a combined kingdom. This is the one that confused me. I, it took forever to find this. The Iron Islands and then the Riverlands in the center 
were combined right. as one kingdom under house i'm gonna say har so i don't have to say whore because it, it spells it, it no it's 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 whore it is whore okay. that's how you say it h right but it's h-o-a-r-e okay so it is the guy because that's the king or the yeah the ruler of that kingdom was heron whore right and that's what heron hall is named after right. yes yes yeah so those are the seven kingdoms again each with an actual king and they're just kind of independently ruling their kingdoms they war with each other constantly but like it's still seven different you know, quote, countries, uh, for all intents and purposes. And the Targaryens would just kind of be this, you know, quirky family or, you know, kind of this oddity off the coast that they knew from Essos and they had dragons and stuff, but uh, they kind of left each other alone. Uh, When you get to Aegon Targaryen, so here we are uh, right before the Targaryens take over, Aegon, the the soon-to-be conqueror, and his two sister wives were often just guests of the lords and kings of Westeros. They would, you know, you'd kind of like curry favor, and it'd be fun to have them over as guests and stuff. And so they were socializing yeah. with Westeros, but still kind of had no interest uh, necessarily in it. To me, it was kind of uh, when Aegon like decides that he wants to be the ruler of Westeros and decides that he wants to start conquering. Yeah, it reminded me of in the first season of Vikings. When Ragnar decides, oh, you know what, I'm tired yeah. of going east. We go east all the time. Let's go west. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a little different because Ragnar was not, like, very familiar, whereas uh, Aegon would have been familiar with the Seven Kingdoms oh, and how right, the geography right. and everything worked out. But just the fact that he was like, oh, yeah, we've been conquering east, like, for thousands of years. I want to I wanna go west. I want to start conquering west. That reminded me of uh, Ragnar Lothbrok in, in Season 1 of Vikings. Okay. Yeah, I agree. So the... Uh... The conflict that kind of brings the Targaryens into this, you have House Whore builds Harrenhal in the center of the continent. So they kind of have the Iron Islands. They wanted to build a fortress in the Riverlands. And then from this fortress of Harrenhal, he starts attacking the Stormlands and House Durandon. And Harrenhal, uh, when it was built, was the largest castle in all of Westeros. Oh, right. Right. This is like a massive, it's a massive, massive, massive keep. fortress yeah. castle. Like to, So much so that even after it is destroyed during the conquest, they keep using it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because they show... I mean, they, we see it in the original Game of Thrones and they go to it in House of the Dragon. Yep. And it's, yep. it's kind of cool because it's like, it's this big ruined, destroyed castle, but like enough of it is still there right. that they, yeah, they still keep using it. So it's like it's uh, I don't, it's a, kind of a cool aesthetic, I think. Whenever they, whenever they go there in the shows, yes. And then of course, and then it's just kind of a crazy reminder that like anyway, we'll we'll, we'll get to that. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So yeah. uh, so Durandon needs help, and so he makes a marriage alliance offer to Aegon. And maybe you can even kind of, I guess you kind of, it sounds like you're actually fairly familiar with all this stuff too. We probably watched all the same videos. I was gonna say you can follow along with your, uh, your, uh, family tree, uh, there. But, uh, so Aegon though is already married. He's, he's already married to both his sisters. So he's yes. like, well, sorry, uh, Drandon, but, uh, hey, maybe though, since I'm already married, maybe your, your daughter could just marry my buddy or actually my bastard half brother, Oris Baratheon instead. Right. So Aegon kind of makes that offer in, in good faith. But because Oris Baratheon is a bastard, Durandon takes massive offense to this offer and cuts off the hands of Aegon's messenger before sending him back to the Targaryens. And... Wrong move. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> yeah, wrong move. This guy's got <laughs> dragons and now just decided he's going to take over not just your kingdom when you were trying to offer to him to get his help. He's going to take over your whole damn continent. <laughs> yes. 
it's funny too because it's like yeah with that with that one little snub that one little move of cutting off the hands of that messenger it's like Aegon decided you know what the only reason I'm not the ruler of all of Westeros is because I just haven't really tried yeah but like I have dragons yeah which is basically like the it's like the weapons of mass destruction of this world yes for and he's real. like yep I, I I think this is all mine now I'm just gonna take it all yes so yeah so he calls his bannerman one of the families is house the house Valerian, which we which we see in in the series House of the Dragon. Yeah, Aegon, Aegon sends ravens to every corner of Westeros, basically saying there will now be one king over all of you, uh, and yep. that king is me, and I'm it. <laughs> <laughs> and then so yeah, the invasion begins. He makes a landfall at and builds a fort at the site which will become King's Landing, which I do kind of like that. So the whole city's called King's Landing because it's where. Aegon made his foothold into Westeros. When he lands there, it's it's originally called Aegon Fort. Oh, right. Which I think yeah. King's, Ban- King's Landing is a way better name. Yes. <laughs> I don't think he ends up naming it King's Landing, though, until like later on after oh, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. at least a majority of the conquest. Well, cause, yeah, because it is just a battle fortification at first. Boy, before it's a city. Because it's, yeah. well, it's, the other thing, too, is that another reason that he was so successful is not only because he had dragons, but the Valerians, just like we see in the show, are like a seafaring people. So he yes. also has this massive navy. So he he has these dragons and all of his bannermen and then this giant armada of ships and he lands it at the mouth of the Blackwater River right. and you know sets up Aegon Fort which is later on King's Landing but he basically all these other armies in Westeros is like guys on horses and guys on the ground with spears and they have you know bows and arrows and stuff but it's like land-based armies right with the exception of like maybe like the Iron Islands and I guess the Westerlands like the Lannisters had ships too but the Targaryens have a combined arms land, sea, and air attack wherever they want. Right. But the only reason they still meet with resistance is, well, one, the pride of all these people who had been literal kings, not just lords. Yes, correct. And two, massive number advantage to the Westerosi. That's true, too. Right. Yeah. So they're thinking, like, yes, you got dragons. Yes, you have this navy. But we outnumber you, like, tenfold or more. Like Right. Yeah. So yeah, the, the the kings aren't very happy about this. Uh, dragons obviously forcing these to bend pretty quickly, though. As we're saying, uh, we do. This is the first time we get the three dragon banner of the Targaryen kind of family yes. seal there, because it is Aegon and his two sister wives. It's their dragons are the ones on the right. seal there. Because in Valyria, uh, heraldry wasn't a thing. They didn't have mm. like the sigils and the house words and stuff. But that was kind of like so throughout the Aegon's conquest. He's obviously not shy about, like, killing a bunch of people, but he does, despite his power and the fact that he just wrecks all these houses, he does make this effort to show, like, I'm one of you, I'm Westerosi, I'm not a foreign invader, I am of Westeros, like, I want to be a a Westerosi ruler, and that also is, like, why he allows, you know, like, people throughout the conquest will be fighting him and then he beats them and he's like okay you can keep your lands you can keep your castles and stuff just swear allegiance to me and it's all good like water under the bridge right he's not looking to destroy westeros right right so that's like one of the things that he does when he first i think it's one of his sister wives is actually the one that crowns him in the ceremony or whatever like when he first lands in king's landing that's like one of the things that he does to show, hey, I'm I'm going to be a Westerosi ruler, not a Valyrian ruler, is he adopts the heraldry. So he gets a sigil, which is, yeah, the three-headed red dragon on mm. black, and then their, their house words, fire and blood, which is the 
book, the name of the book. Yes, that yes. the show is that the show House of the Dragon is based on. Yeah, that yeah that book basically covers everything from the conquest through I forget it, it's only halfway. So the plan is to do a second one. So basically, it's the first hundred fifty years is the Fire and Blood book, and then at some point, yeah, <laughs> health willing, there'll be a second book to kind of takes us through the Mad King. And kind of a two yeah. volume thing there, but that's those are, those are the house words of House Targaryen, and like the other famous ones is like you know Winter is coming. This was a Stark house words, right? Lannister always pays his debts. Yeah. Ours is the Fury, is the Baratheons, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So to your point about him feeling Westerosi, we kind of roll right from the Doom to the Conquest, but a hundred years went by there. So Aegon's never been to Essos. He grew up, up. He was born and grew up. His grandparents born and grew oh, up off right. the coast of yeah, Westeros. Yeah. So yeah, that's your point. Right. They've been there for you know hundred years by this point. Right. So we kind of glossed over yeah. that because they weren't really doing anything. But yeah, the, the family had been on Dragonstone for a hundred years before uh, the conquest. But it's kind of like how we think. You know, that that sounds like a long time. Like oh oh yeah, the the Targaryens have been in Westeros for like you know two three four hundred years. Like wow, that's that's a crazy long time. It's like. Yeah, but, you know, the Gardeners had been ruling the Reach at that point for, like, 8,000 years. <laughs> uh, not if they were Andal descent, but your po- but, but point taken. Yeah, it still could have been a th- thousand years or more. Yes, yes. Or maybe it, th- maybe it was just a thousand. I don't yeah. know if it was 8,000 years. But, like, right. when you're talking about, like, oh, a couple hundred years on the scale of the Starks who have right. been in Winterfell since the world was created. Yeah, Starks in the North has been forever. The Starks are almost like the Egyptians up there doing it forever. Right, so it's like... It's easy to see how even though they had been there for you know hundreds of years, there would still be this thing of oh well they're they're not Westerosi, they're Valyrian. Right, right. Yeah, that's true too. The first big battle is uh, Harrenhal. House Hor basically yeah. holds out, and they prove pretty quickly with dragons and kind of use it to make an example. So this awesome new fortress uh, castle is is destroyed, and basically they were so confident because again this was a state-of-the-art, biggest castle in Westeros, this just yeah. huge symbol of power, and they melt yeah. the stone with dragon fire. And it's like, they had no idea what they're messing with. Yeah, and previously, Heron Hor's sons tried to escape, and Aegon killed them all. And so it's like him and his bannermen are like holed up in this castle, and he says, oh, you, you know, I'm in my castle, you can't, I got supplies, like, I'm siege-proof, you can't, you can't kill me. Right. Like, I'm, you know... Right. And he melts the walls. Basically, fuck off, Aegon. Yeah. I'm, you know, there's nothing you can do. And Aegon says, I have a dragon, and I'm gonna melt your castle, <laughs> and I'm gonna end your bloodline. And he does. Yes. And that's why, that's why, well, that ends the line of the whores. Right. And that's why in the show, then, it, well, in both shows, the Tullys are the ones that rule the Trident and the Riverlands is because they're... Then the house that is like next in line okay. takes over that area, and they're the ones that swear allegiance to Aegon. Okay, and in uh, in House of the Dragon, I think it's actually a stone that controls it at that point. But yeah, at some point it must have switched to the Tullys. Or again, I could get confused on that as well. I know. I think there is like a some sort of dispute, maybe. Or sorry, not stone, not stone. Strong, strong, strong is what I thought the ones that. Uh, oh, you're okay. Yeah, yeah, yes, but I but the Tullys are the ones that get. And maybe it's like it, they lost it and, and take it back later at some point okay. in history. But Atoli is the one who, I forget, I want to say it's Edmure, but I think that might be a different Tully. I don't know. But it is Atoli that is, after Heron Hall is destroyed, is given control of the Trident. Okay, it is okay. 
Yeah, their their house is River Run, but they also get the trident or the trident in the Heron Hall. Okay. Speaking of the Tollies in House of the Dragon, they mentioned a guy named Grover Tully. Oh, okay. Have you seen that? And it's like a there's an Easter egg. So there's Grover, and he has a grandson named Elmo, and Elmo has two sons named Oscar and Kermit. <laughs> and it's like a Sesame Street Easter egg from George R. R. Martin when he named these characters. That's awesome. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. So, uh, uh, meanwhile, Baratheon, who's basically the right-hand man, or actually he literally becomes the first hand of the king, Oris Baratheon, he defeats Durandon and claims Storm's end, and ironically, marries the dude's daughter. Anyway. Which is what, yeah, the refusal is what started this whole conflict in the first place, and he still marries him. Yeah. And that's actually what establishes House Baratheon in Storm's end. Right. Is with uh, with Oris marrying Durandon's daughter. And he, uh... He kind of like copycats, like he takes their sigil, like that. Right, they were the stag. The stag, right. That's not a Baratheon thing. He takes the sigil of the Durandans yes. and their house words and says, oh, we're just House Baratheon now. Yeah, yeah. So the guy that he defeats, I think, has one of the coolest names in Game of Thrones, Argalac Durandon. <laughs> that's a good name. And his nickname is Argalac the Arrogant. I think that's so. that sounds so badass. <laughs> But he's uh, he's defeated by Oris in single combat during the battle, too. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. So, yeah, definitely a, uh, a decisive victory by Oris Baratheon and uh, Rhaenyra's. And the that battle specifically was, it's called the Last Storm, is how it's, like, oh, referred cool. to in their history. And it's because there was, like, a massive storm moves in, and that's why the battle was dicier than it probably would have been otherwise uh because rainies couldn't fly her dragon because the storm was too bad so she was uh, she they still use the dragon but they could only use it on the ground and we should say rainies is one of aegon's sisters yeah yeah yeah. so rainies and um not the rainies in house and the dragon it's the same name same name yeah correct yeah it's the one the one that the rainies and house of the dragon is named after yes. the original yes yeah they're her and Visenya are aegon's sisters. sister wives yes but I, yeah, I just, it's kind of uh, interesting that they were, I mean, they weren't almost defeated. Like, they, it was still, they still killed all of the Durandan forces and were victorious. But it was a little harder than it would have been because of the, because of the storm. Huh. And then the next major battle that also gets rid of, uh, it makes a house shift for us for what we're familiar with, with uh, the Game of Thrones series. The Lannisters unite with the Gardeners and meet a Targaryen force. But again, the... Lannister and Gardner force outnumbers the Targaryens 10 to 1, but the Targaryens have dragons, so they win. Lannister bends the knee, but Gardner is destroyed, and House Tyrell is installed in the Reach, the family we're familiar with from the Game of Thrones. That's how the Tyrells got the Reach, just like the Baratheons got Storm's End. Right. So there's, just like the battle in the Stormlands was called the Last Storm, the battle that ended the Gardner line and almost killed... Lauren Lannister is called the Field of Fire because it was like, and I don't know why they would make this tactical decision, but they like the field that they marched out to battle in was like just full of dry grass. Oh no. And so it was like, it was just like so easy to kill them with dragons. And it was apparently it was like tens of thousands of dudes burned to death. Wow. Because of the fire from the dragons. You just fly over, you set a fire on one side and the other side and behind them and they're done. (laughs) Right. You don't have to stay and kill them. (laughs) <laughs> the fire yeah. doesn't work. Yeah, set the fire and leave. <laughs> yeah, and I can see that. I mean, one, they they're not used to fighting dragons, and two, if you're used to military action on the ground, 
firm, dry ground is probably when you're most comfortable. Like, this makes sense. It's right. just what you're used to. Yeah. You're like, oh, yep. wait a second. Hang on. Fire. <laughs> <laughs> so then the veil and the north bend the knee kind of after seeing this. Only Dorn holds out. And actually, so there's another thing, too, when they talk about when the Aegon starts styling himself king of the seven kingdoms. Yeah, Dorne never submits for, like, over 100 years here. Yeah, it's like over a century, yeah. Yeah, and they basically stay independent because they they just refuse to engage. You send an army down to Dorne, and Dorne just hides. And so, they, yep. so Dorne's more like this guerrilla tactic stuff, and they manage to take out, I forget which one it is, they manage to take out one of Aegon's sisters and a dragon, getting the first dragon kill in Westeros. They Yeah, so... Rainies is killed because they they basically shoot down her dragon with a giant crossbow okay. called a scorpion, which we, we see, see in Game of Thrones series. Yeah, in Game of Thrones, and then uh, yeah, basically every time they send an army down there, it's like fighting the Viet Cong. Like they 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 march down there, and it's like ev- everyone's gone. Right, you can take the capital city of Dorm, but then they just leave, and there's no one there. Kind of like the Russians with Napoleon. Right. The first time that Rainies went to Dorne, she went to like the first city. It was only women and children. Right. The next city, only women and children, no armies. Yep. And the next one, and that's as she gets all the way to, um, is it Sun- Sunspear or Sandspear? What's the name of the capital city? There? Sunspear is the capital of Dorne. Yeah. Sunspear. So Sunspear, and the entire city is empty except for the queen. Huh. And she's basically like, "We're not going to fight. Like, we're not going to fight you. We're not going to come out and like, we're not going to attack you." But we're also not going to submit. You know, unbowed, unbent, yeah. unbroken. We're not going to surrender. So like. You can come down and try and fight us, but that might not be as easy as you think. Yep. And uh, they they do try it a couple times, but yeah, they just they just kind of like disappear into the mountains and into their little holes, and they only come out, you know, at night. And they do, yeah, little like hit and run moves. Yeah, like you said, it's it's over a hundred years later, and it's you know through marriages and diplomacy, and that's like you know that's how Dorne eventually becomes part of the Seven Kingdoms, but not on their own terms, not not because they were conquered or because they bent the knee. Right. But yes, so outside of Dorne, that basically is, Aegon is now king, King's Landing is constructed. Well, one more thing about about Aegon's conquest, at the end of the conquest is when he forges the Iron Throne. Oh, true. So that's the Iron Throne, That when we talk about the Game of Thrones, like the Iron Throne, the one that we see in both shows that's made out of all these swords, those are the swords of all the enemies that Aegon conquered and then used Dragonfire to to make the Iron Throne. Forge the throne, right. So yes, the Iron yeah. Throne is forged from the, the blades of Aegon's enemies. Which is so badass. <laughs> that's such a cool, yeah. that's such a cool concept. Very Genghis Khan kind of thing to do, it feels like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he is succeeded by his uh, eldest son, Aenys I, right. who immediately faces rebellions. Again, it's still kind of a new, new throne, new title, new position, so you're always going to have a lot of rebellions. Uh, most significant, though, is the Faith Militant, who can't tolerate the Targaryen inbreeding. They had been inbreeding, you know, marrying brother yeah. to sister and first cousins for generations already. Yep. And obviously they couldn't really stop the conquest. But now that it's not the conqueror anymore, it's his son. The Faith Militant rises up and is basically like, we got to get these sinners basically out of control. And so that's kind of a big fight. That's something that's uh that's interesting about the you know, Song of Ice and Fire universe at large is like incest is such a big theme in the books and in the show. Like b- just because you have like these prominent characters that are doing it all the time. But in that culture, like in that society, incest is very frowned upon. The only reason the Targaryens get away with it dragons. is because they have dragons and they're the ruling house. 
And it's kind of same thing with like Jamie and Cersei Lannister. The only reason they get away with it is because they're the ruling house and they keep it and secret. They keep it secret and they even kind of talk about like, I think at one point they're talking and like, why do we have to keep it secret? The Targaryens did it for generations. But yeah, it's still so frowned upon that they, they can't get away with it. It's such a big thing in the shows like incest is all over the place. But yeah, very, very frowned upon in Westerosi society. Yes. Uh, so Annie's here is actually relatively weak and kind of just looks like dies from the stress of this whole situation. But then his half brother, Megor, kind of swoops in and yeah. t- takes the throne before his nephews can have a chance. He kind of swoops in and says, like, no, I'm the king now. And he's right. very heavy handed, smashes the faith militant. Yep. It's just, he's even called Megor the Cruel with just kind of right. how reckless and vicious he is. But kind of just dies mysteriously and is found dead on the Iron Throne. Right, and he is the one who built the Red Keep. Oh, yeah, okay. The big castle in King's Landing that we see in both shows was built by Megor the Cruel. You mentioned that, you know, the Genghis Khan similarity. Yeah. Megor the Cruel pulls a little bit of a Genghis Khan. When we talked about how Genghis Khan's, like, his whole funeral procession was killed, so no one would find out about where he was buried. Megor the Cruel, after he built the Red Keep, had all of the builders killed. Yes, to keep all the secret passages and stuff right. an actual secret. He also, this is just like a little minor note, but he wielded Visenya, her sword, a Valyrian steel sword called Dark Sister, which is also in the show the sword that Daemon Targaryen has. Ah, uh, okay. So yeah. that's that Valyrian steel sword is it belonged to originally Visenya and then Magor and and then we see it with uh with Daemon. Oh man, and then side note, so that's something that I actually think is cool when you have weapons that are passed down and like become things that like they cuz they cannot last the people. Similar to what we see with some of the dragons in House of the Dragon. Right. We actually see like the big main dragon in the House of the Dragon series is like the dragon of one of the Conqueror sisters that's still alive. And I suppose it was like the small one, but it's like the giant one yeah. in the House of the Dragon show. Anyway, it's kind of cool when that stuff uh, lingers on. I like they did that with the swords here, and they, you know, or, they, or they melt them down and you know reforge new things. I so wanted that to be the case with Star Wars lightsabers, and the prequels series just destroyed that because you have the whole oh. like you know obi-wan this is your father's lightsaber he wanted you to have it when you're old enough but then in in the the prequel tr- trilogy they're just they're cutting them up grabbing a new one throw that lightsaber get this lightsaber like they, they become completely <laughs> meaningless and it's so much cooler and the and the the force awakens tried to get a little bit of that back but of course then i was it, gonna say it, they kind of try to do it in the sequel in the in seven eight nine yeah. but it did yeah it does not it's not the same yeah they never gave that deep dive it sh- they sh- could have done with it and anyway right. but yeah so yeah I, I like how game of thrones does that well because almost more po- i mean the the valyrian steel swords is a huge thing and actually by the time it gets to game of thrones valyrian steel is in the books and the show is like highly prized because the way that it's made has been lost in the doom of Valyria. So there's like the swords that they have is what they have. And so it's almost a status symbol, like for your entire house. If your entire house has just one Valyrian steel sword, like the Tarleys do, right? Like Ned Stark sword. He has the one, right? And that's like a huge deal, right? So the fact that like these, all these swords, you know, that they all have Valyrian steel swords in, um, well, not all of them, but like there's, there's a lot more, in House of the Dragon, that just kind of goes to show how that you know you kind of have this like degradation of the mystical and the fantastical parts of the world 
just like there's a shit ton of dragons right and then and then none yeah there's at the beginning of game of thrones there's no dragons until right. daenerys hatches her three right but one of the things that we do see is the dagger that's given yes. to aegon the second a little later in the in the show but that's the same valyrian steel dagger that that we see with Littlefinger and that then Arya uses to kill the Night King. It's yes. the same Valyrian steel dagger. Yes. Uh, yeah, that is that is cool. It is, uh, which is why I think they even kind of recognize it. I forget who first notices it. They're like, wait, that's not just any dagger. That's like an old yeah. dagger. Yeah. Yeah, it also makes you, with the whole history of these weapons, it makes you extra pissed off that after Ned Stark gets beheaded, they melt ice. That's the Stark, the Stark Valyrian steel sword is ice. And right. they melt it down. It was probably a 500 or a thousand year old sword. Right. And they make two swords out of it. Yeah. Anyway, it's just, yeah. So it's, yeah. So they, don't know how to make, they don't know how to make that steel anymore because, yeah, the, the technology was lost in the doom. Yeah. So after Megor the Cruel is just literally just found dead on the Iron Throne, it goes back to his brother's kids. But the first of his brother's kids is Jaehaerys the First. Which actually, right. we do see the prologue of House of the Dragon. He's the old, the old guy, old King Jaehaerys. So he'd be the right. grandson of the Conqueror, right? And ruled for a, for a long time. Just kind of, kind of stabilized uh, what was what was going on there. And he's his epithet is uh, the conciliator, and he was seen as this like unifying figure. He like brought peace to the realm. You know, Megor was kind of like. I'm going to rule with an iron fist. If you don't agree with me, you're just going to get smashed. Whereas Jaehaerys is like, hey, everyone, let's like try and work together. And so he was actually a really popular king, which is then where we see like Viserys in the show, who's his son, is also very popular and is just kind of like... Clearly grandson, yeah. Or grandson. He's like, he's like, you know, I want to do, I just want to do tournaments and have parties and like just hang out and like everyone be peaceful and like I don't need to smash anybody with my dragons and... Right. So you basically see Aegon conquered mm-hmm. magor punched anybody who wanted to argue it in the in the face and now by the time you get to right. jaharis who's the fourth targaryen king who rules for like 50 60 years he's like all right i'm the king we got the dragons but i want us all to be friends here and just i want stability and prosperity for everyone and yeah the conciliatory conciliatory or whatever like you're saying which is all good but he rules so long that he outlives all of his children. So the prologue for House of the Dragon then is basically the big meeting to talk about his succession. And it's at Hall. You can see the open right. roof from the dragon damage from the Conqueror, which would have been yep. his grandfather. Which kind of crazy is that? It's like, yeah, this place doesn't have a roof because my grandpa blew it off with a dragon. Yeah. And they pass over his eldest granddaughter, basically the daughter of his eldest son, to go with the son of like his second son basically they're just choosing the male line instead of the elder right. female line and that is how we get king viserys the first who is the king throughout the first season of house of the dragon and we kind of see and of course house of the dragon uh season one takes uh i mean it's probably 15 years that it covers so the other character his his uh so his first cousin is the one who's passed over they call her the queen who never was that's uh, Rhaenys. She's married to the Sea Snake, Corlys Valerian, again, from that yeah. other old house who had fought with the Conqueror and had the navy and everything. So it's you can kind of see how the history of the Targaryens now, you can kind of see uh, all the background that gets us into House of the Dragon. And she's, like, miffed about it. When she doesn't get chosen, she's, it kind of... 
wrinkles her. Yeah, yeah, for sure. She's she yeah she's she's not like it's not like a all shucks type thing. That's a big deal to her. Right, right. And then it's interesting then too because then we immediately and again so now we're gonna kind of spoil some things of of House of the Dragon here at varying degrees. Some will just kind of be the setup, but it will kind of get into I guess the whole thing here. So very early on. Because of that rocky succession to get to Viserys in the first place, Viserys is adamant he needs to have a son so that we don't end up with more war. And that's kind of how this show kicks off is with his wife giving birth to a son, but then that son and the wife die. So now his only living heir is his teenage daughter, Rhaenyra. Yeah. And... He basically says, screw it. We got to have some kind of stability because, you know, I guess technically be my brother because he'd be the next male if he kind of go back up. But he also was kind of like love-hate relationship with his brother. Right. So it says, screw it. I am naming my daughter. Yes, I know we have kings, but just it's just going to be way smoother of a transition if I just name my oldest child, my daughter, Rhaenyra, and basically have a big ceremony. He makes all the other lords of the Seven Kingdoms Neil and swear fealty that yes, Rhaenyra is going to be the first queen upon the eventual death of Viserys the first, and that gives me Empress Matilda vibes. Oh, big time! Absolute, hundred percent. It's like the exact same thing. Yes, yes. King dies, says, "Hey, I know I don't, I don't have a son. My daughter is good. She's my heir." And then as soon as he dies, it's like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to have a queen. <laughs> right, yes. Henry I of England made all of his nobles swear that his daughter Matilda, and again, it was after his son had died in the white ship uh, accident, that he made them all right. swear that uh, Matilda would succeed him, named Matilda as his heir. He also remarried, but didn't actually end up having any other kids. Right. But Matilda wasn't around, and then it goes to her cousin, Versus in the show, the king remarries and actually does have kids. So there is a, there is the difference. But it is very, very similar to the Henry I to Matilda to Henry II situation. Yeah. Spoiler alert yet again, even the fact that, because the show doesn't even get to this, this is kind of after the show, the ultimate king after the civil war we're going to get to is the son of Rhaenyra. Damon and Rhaenyra. Just yeah. like Henry II was the... Yeah son of empress matilda after the anarchy civil war yes yeah which makes me think just like george r, r. martin was like oh game of thrones or a song of ice and fire that's you know war of the roses the right. yorks and the lancasters right this is like the anarchy empress matilda yeah 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 it's yeah it's absolutely the anarchy a 19 year civil war now of course civil war in here is going to be actually a little bit shorter i think it's only about 18 months or a couple years that we'll get to uh, the end of season one here. House of Dragon basically gets to the beginnings of it's like the start. Yeah, yeah. It's basically the start of the Civil War. Um, and I think they, I think the plan is four seasons, and they'll kind of hash out this Civil oh, War really? over okay. the course of three more seasons. And then you know who knows where they go from there. I've heard ideas that they could actually keep the show going and just like it's still House of the Dragon, but it's now the next generation and their issues. You they get, totally could. You get the Blackfire rebellions and all that. They totally could. I would. I would love to eventually if they like got far enough see like a like a robert's rebellion and, right. and like see a young robert baratheon fight it like that would be cool because the stories that you hear about it are awesome like it would be so cool to actually see that brought to life on the screen yeah like robert baratheon big strong dude wielding his war hammer just like smashing targaryens that would be so cool <laughs> <laughs> and i'd actually man i 
I had originally kind of planned on, I didn't want to hash out the Civil War because we can kind of just let that play out and just kind of, we just, just basically just kind of know that this is a Civil War that all but eliminates the, the Targaryen dragons. They went from 18 dragons at the start of the Civil War to two in a couple of years. Yep. So 16 dragons yep. are killed in two years. And then the other two ended up, I mean, they don't, basically dragon breeding is now gone and they end up dying off, which is why then by the time you get to the original Game of Thrones series, it's been 150, 200 years since anyone has seen a dragon. Right. Uh, there's been no living dragons on Earth. And actually, I didn't follow this close enough. I'm pretty sure, but I don't know which, which ones it would have been or how, where they ended up. But I'm guessing the eggs that Danny has in the Game of Thrones series make an appearance in House of the Dragon. I just can't keep track of who, what eggs, or eggs, yeah, eggs went missing, I think. I think they're going to have to, and it'll probably be at the end, that'll be like the thing, it'll be like one of the things, like, oh, you know, remember this from Game okay. of Thrones? Because, yeah, I mean, it'll, it's going to have to be one of those dragons. Right. Well, again, I, th- I thought the eggs might have already made an appearance, like, and they just haven't hatched yet, or they end up kind of oh, yeah, maybe or... Maybe, because they, because they do have eggs in the show, too, because they, right. they put them in the... Oh, the cradles. They put them in the cradles. It's like a token. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. They yeah. put them in. The, they put them in the cradles so that they can like bond with the with the Targaryen kids. That way, when they hatch, they they'll be like you know a leg up on their bonding, and they can ride them easier. Right, right. And then uh, yeah, so we won't, we won't hash out the House of the Dragon series. I do, I do recommend it for Game of the Thrones fans. And even though I'd already read the Fire and Blood book, I still was constantly entertained still didn't necessarily know what was going to happen mostly because i've kind of forgot some things also because they maybe they changed some things but I, you know i'd pull up the family tree and be like well, well here's a little bit of a spoiler but it didn't actually change my appreciation of of the show if anything it helps keep things in mind well they they also in the book there are multiple narrators and a lot of it is like it's either straight up unreliable or it's like oh these three narrators all said different things about the same event oh right so like yes. which one is it? like a lot of this like the you know the big stuff you you know you know what what is what but not always with motivations yeah but there's like little inconsistencies and like little things it's like oh maybe this person maybe this narrator isn't telling the truth here they're embellishing something or you know they're leaving stuff out yeah the the book and the show are different because with the you know when when you're making a show it's like the camera it's like objective like you're seeing what's happening you're seeing the event it's not being told to you by a narrator who may or may not have been there or is you know relaying you information or something like that right in in the books so he did he did not do this with the song and fire uh song and uh, vice and uh, vice vice (laughs) song of ice and fire (laughs) but uh in fire and blood the conceit is it's not george r R. martin writing the book it's maester so-and-so in old town is re- yeah. writing a Targaryen family history in whatever year. And so the conceit is that right. it's not even Martin writing it. It's a biased person in the world who is telling these stories. And then sometimes they'll even cut in and be like, okay, well, this is what Maester so-and-so said. But uh, according to some diaries left by this court jester, here's what they think yeah. it was. And so, you know, with things that being, being more lurid than maybe the Maester was willing to go into. So it's kind of a fun little conceit there. Yeah, so I, I was going to do the whole thing, but we're kind of actually going to be short on time. So maybe we can leave Robert's Rebellion to a later thing. But yeah, after the Dance of Dragons, you do end up with just more Targaryen kings, more minor civil wars. When uh, the big kind of event is uh, Aegon IV ends up legitimizing all his myriad of bastards on his deathbed. Yeah. 
and which basically throws the whole realm into chaos. And that's why they call him Aegon the Unworthy. Yes, yeah, so he's kind of considered the worst king. He just screwed the whole country by basically saying, oh, yeah, all these guys are now possible heirs. And so, yeah. you know, with generations of these guys saying, well, hey, we were made legitimate. We can be kings now. And so it's all these Blackfire rebellions. It's like the opposite of Elizabeth I refusing to name an heir because she knew that it would throw the country into chaos. He was like, I'm just going to say everyone can be an heir. And and it's just, yeah, just unmitigated war and chaos ensues. So I think the second Blackfire Rebellion plays into the Duncan Egg short stories, which are kind of the other book that Martin has written in the world, kind of a collection of short stories about, it's it's Duncan Egg. Basically, there's a a, uh, hedge knight, Sir Duncan the Tall, and then, and then Aegon. A- yes, Aegon, who basically is growing up in kind of hiding. So he becomes a squire for this knight, but he's actually secretly a prince. And to hide his Targaryen long blonde hair, he shaves his head, which kind of makes him look like an egg. And he's also named Aegon, but he is the one who yeah. ultimately becomes uh, King Aegon Fifth, and is the grandfather of the Mad King and is the younger brother of... Maester Aemon up at the wall, who John right, meets yeah. and is the old guy there too. So there, there is kind of connections to all this stuff. They're not too far removed from then after uh, House of the Dragon, even though it is like 150 years. And we see uh, in the show, Lenor Valerion does the same thing when he fakes his death or whatever. When he escapes and he's like rowing the boat, and you see him, he's got the the in the show. The Valerians also have white hair, but it's they all have, like, the, the dreads. Oh, yes, yes. And so it's, like, a very distinct look. Like, you could tell who they are just by looking at them. Right. So he shaves it, yeah, shaves his head completely bald yeah. so that he can, like, escape to the east and, and be anonymous. Okay, yep, yep. And then, yes, then the Tar- Targaryen rule ultimately does come to an end with Robert's Rebellion, which, you know what, that would almost be worth doing another episode. Because it's actually really interesting to see, if you've only seen the show and haven't done a lot of research, it actually is kind of neat to hear exactly how Robert's Rebellion played out. We get hints of it in the original yeah. Game of Thrones show, but they don't give you the whole thing all at once, or some is kind of revealed you know, intentionally with spoilers and stuff. So we'll do another episode at some point here on Robert's Rebellion. Because actually, that's when I wanted to get into... I, I wanted to also get into my... Uh, some of my theories on how you know Game of Thrones should have ended and all those kinds of things that I actually haven't put on the record yet. But okay, that's less of a Targaryen focus and more something we can maybe do with uh, Robert's Rebellion. But this is gonna be another. It's gonna be in a three-hour episode if we did Robert's Rebellion today. <laughs> oh yeah. So especially if we talk, if we get start talking about how Game of Thrones should have ended, <laughs> yes. that'll easily go three hours. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Robert's Rebellion and how Game of Thrones should have ended would it be a whole other episode? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so yeah, final thoughts with, I guess, what would you do with a dragon, Logan? <laughs> what would I do with a dragon? <laughs> yeah. Whatever I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the correct answer. <laughs> oh, so we, we, we did talk about this a, a little bit, and I, I'll promise I'll keep this brief because I already kind of talked about it before, but I I actually really do like the show. My only issue, and I think you said something about this when you were first telling me that I should watch the show, is that... I don't like any of the characters. I don't identify with any of them. Right. They're all pretty shitty, to be honest. Yeah. But it's interesting. That almost makes it more fun because it's like, oh, I don't really care like if any of these characters get like horribly murdered. Like it's it's <laughs> it's all fun. Like it's all cool. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Versus when you lose a character you like, you're like, oh, right. this sucks, yeah. It's like the, kind of the reverse of Game of Thrones where it's like, oh man, like the stakes are so high because I know that the show is not shy about killing characters that I really like. It, on, it, with this, it's like, oh yeah, the stakes are super low. Like 
everyone can, can get killed. I don't care. Right. House of the Dragon, you're like, boo, kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah, so not historical, but you can kind of see as we're nerding out about this how we definitely get the same kind of enjoyment as we do about researching actual Earth history. So thanks for uh, patronizing us, I guess. And happy holidays, everyone. This will probably release right around then, I guess, with everything going on there before the end of the year. So, yep, we'll, we'll see you next time. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. <laughs>